Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books. On our show this week, Megan Dom is here to tell us about a new book she's edited called Selfish, Shallow, and Self-Absorbed, 16 Writers on the Decision Not to Have Kids. Joining me are my co-hosts, Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. Hey, Seth. And as ever, Lori Weiner. Hola. The Los Angeles Review of Books is in its spring membership drive, and we can really use your help. Go to lareviewofbooks.org slash membership. Megan Dom is with us today. She is a columnist at the Los Angeles Times, a memoirist, a novelist. Her new book, The Unspeakable, is so good, I actually paid for it myself. I didn't ask you to send me a copy. And you have edited a book called Selfish, Shallow, and Self-Absorbed, which means Lori Weiner can no longer use the title for her autobiography. What the hell? The subhead (laughs) is 16 Writers on the Decision Not to Have Kids. In thinking about this book, I thought, what a personal area to delve into and to ask other writers to expose themselves in that way really must have been uh, tricky for you. What was that like? What was putting this book together like? The process of recruiting people, I think, would warrant a whole book in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think I was asking them to to reveal all. I mean, you know, I was asking people to talk about a very specific area. But, you know, one of the things about this is, you know, you, you someone doesn't have kids, but you, you don't know why they don't have kids and you don't know what the circumstances were. And I really wanted to put together a book that talked about making this decision in a thoughtful way and being happy with that decision. There have been a couple of anthologies around this issue and and certainly like we see writing about it and essays and so forth, but I always just felt like it was handled in much too glib of a way. Like it tends to be, oh, I'd rather have a Porsche than have kids or I'd rather hit the snooze button. And and I don't really, I have never met anyone who, you know, genuinely chose a Porsche over a child if he or she really wanted a child. So I wanted to find writers that would not only talk about this, but talk about it in a pretty nuanced way. So to answer your question, yeah, it was, um, it was a very, I had to go about it very gingerly and um, I... I, I exerted a lot of effort composing these emails to people, asking them. I think the timing of the book is so great because I just know in my lifetime, I think the shaming of women who decide not to have children or who don't have children is decreased dramatically. But I'm in my 50s, but I've lived through the shaming period where people just felt no compunction about shaming you or asking you questions in public like well when are you going to have children Laurie and you know like with that edge and and that is changing and so you're you're coming out with this book at a time of transition I think culturally in with this issue or you did you feel that at all I think it's changing a little bit it's so funny Laurie because I actually didn't know you were in our church (laughs) I would have asked you namaste (laughs) um I think it is changing I think that there's just a lot of content out there about all sorts of things. So, you know, for every, you know, piece we have with somebody proudly and happily declaring that this is their decision, then we get another, you know, essay on the Huffington Post or Thought Catalog or somewhere about how being a mom was the greatest thing. I mean, it's just sort of like, I I feel like the, the construction that you see everywhere is, I used to be blank, but then I became a parent. Meg Wolitzer, writing about The Unspeakable, said... 
Someone, I'm never sure who, once said, write as if everyone you know were dead. And Megan Dom really does write that way. <laughs> By which I mean she writes what she wants to without looking over her shoulder every second. And did you find that people were, the people that you were editing were looking over their shoulders, that they were worried about saying what they wanted to say? Yes. And there were people who I got pretty close to recruiting and then they, they changed their minds uh -huh. um, because they had a lot to say, but they didn't want to do it right now because of various family members or, or other people. There were a couple of people who said yes and then backed out later because they just couldn't deal with it. In order to say what they want to say, they're also saying something against their sister or their sister-in-law or their well i guess you could look at it that way i mean again i i really wanted to do this book as a way of reframing the conversation because the idea that choosing not to have kids means that you are judging people who do choose to have kids it's just such a ridiculous dichotomy it doesn't make any sense it's like saying people who have cats hate people who don't have cats well it, we do oh, okay well <laughs> but that's different <laughs> Okay. okay. No, but but just backing up a second, when Tom was saying people don't want to hurt the feelings of family members who are still alive, but but in fact, one of your um, most famous and and greatest essays could only have been written after your grandmother and your mother died. And right? which essay was that? I forget what it's, it's called. called. Matricide. Matricide, of course. <laughs> yes, yes. It's not about yeah. killing your mattress. <laughs> yes, I didn't realize that until my just mattress now. was had to be thrown out also. Though, so yeah. But but I mean, perhaps you perhaps you could have written it. I mean, no. But never. you couldn't. No. Yeah. No. So that that happens. But then yes. then there's this great saying, which no one's sure who said it, but the, it is when a writer is born into a family, that family is finished. Yeah. And that that writers, we have a compulsion to, to tell everything. That's what we do. And it does hurt people. And everyone has to find a way around that, or to deal with that or and the writers in this in this book all had to do that, I suppose, to one degree or another. Now, there there are 16 essays in the book, and if I'm not mistaken, 13 are written by women and three by guys? Right. Is that right? Right. Why do you think it broke down that way? Well, I, I really wanted to have men in the collection. I don't think I have ever seen this topic approached in any sort of organized mm -hmm. way that included men in the conversation. But, you know, at the same time, I think that half and half might have been a little bit off. I kind of feel like a three to 13 ratio is representative of the degree to which women fret over this versus men. So it, it felt fair. right. Yeah. And the men, you know, they, they come from different, you know, points of view. There's um, Paul Lisicki is a, a gay man who, you know, lived through a period where everyone he knew was dying. And there wasn't this kind of heteronormative parenting culture that, that, you know, gay people were embracing. And he's kind of, you know, observing that now. And he talks about that. And then I have Jeff Dyer, who's a married straight guy. And I have Tim Kreider, who's a, a bachelor uh, to the nth degree. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We're talking with author and now editrix, Megan Dom. She's just put a book together called Selfish, Shallow, and Self-Absorbed, 16 Writers on the Decision Not to Have Kids. Because in, in all sorts of ways, nobody says, well, I can't understand how you, you can live. I mean, you decided not to become a veterinarian. And, and being a veterinarian is so fulfilling. How... Yeah. How do you live without being a veterinarian? I mean, nobody asks you a question like that, right? This is a very specific form of assumed regret. Yeah. 
I mean, look, at the end of the day, most people are going to want to have children. Most people do have children, as it should be. It's never not going to be that way. I'm not advocating for people not to have kids. I'm not saying that there's, you know, untold numbers who are doing something they don't want to do. I mean, I I guess all I want to do is have the conversation be one in which people can sort of access this as a non-taboo, as something that people can think about. Because I think there are a lot of people who, I mean, it's a spectrum. There are people who really, really want kids and they always knew it. And then there are people on the other side who definitely never did. And then there are people in the middle who sort of, you know, maybe they didn't really want to do it and they did it for because they felt pressured. And, and sometimes that works out great. You hear that all the time. I wasn't sure, but it ended up being the best decision of my life. But not always. Well, there is a logical disconnect. I mean, the planet is about to explode from overpopulation. It doesn't seem that hard to get to the place where you should be able to consider that people may not want to have kids and would still be great contributors. Be. <laughs> right. It, you know, it's kind of a dub, but... but I mean, what, how old were you when you got married? If you don't 39. Mind. Okay, so I was around that age too. Did you ever feel that people, even well-intentioned people, would try to shame you about not being married and then also then about not having children? I mean, they it's like built in biologically. People have to do this to women somehow. I have I have parents. My father, and I actually really respect him for this. He was a, he's a good father. He likes us now, but he says I, he says he should never have had kids. Like he he says that, and he's right, <laughs> um, and he did a good job with it. No, I mean I think I I really it's not like he left us. He provided. He, you know, we're still close. But I think he's just a, a person who, had he been you know had other circumstances and been from a different time or place, um, he would have made a, a different decision and he would have been able to make a different decision. So I mean I never really got it from my parents. I mean my mom a little bit, but. But no, there was no, I wanted to make it to 40 before I got married. Let, let's just say it that way. I had like a sort of. You almost a, made it. Yeah. I, I'll, and, and we got married when we did because my mother was dying and I wanted her to be at the wedding. So, Megan, you probably go into a project like this with a certain amount of preconceptions, I would think. I'm curious, what surprised you? I was surprised by all the different paths that were represented. We have people like Jeff Dyer, who's just very funny and, and you know, says, I've, I've spent my whole life, not only do I not want children, I've spent my whole life trying to avoid it and avoid them. And his piece is not glib at all, but he's so funny that I, th- and he's British, so he gets away with this. But um, yeah, I think his kind of comes the closest to sarcasm. Rosemary Mahoney writes about being a single woman in her early 40s, and she thought that she wanted a child and went so far as to have IVF and paid a lot of money and was like doing this in a sort of hysterical way and um, just slammed on the brakes one day and it was like this revelation I, I don't want this I never wanted this like what was this about and um, you know there there are people who were in marriages there were people who had abortions there were people who had miscarriages who kind of thought they wanted this maybe and then didn't and so yeah one of the things I really like about it is is no one kind of gets to this place the same way um, you know I say in the introduction you know it's sort of like people who who have kids choose to have them in the same way and people who don't have kids mm. you know everyone has their own story for how they mm. how they got there right and I'm not sure that that would entirely hold up but as a way of thinking about it it's kind of kind of interesting well I wonder if you've had this experience you may be 
too young to have had it, but um, I was never interested in babies when I was a little girl. I never babysat. I had no interest in children. And that continued pretty much until I started to go through menopause. And then all of a sudden, babies were unbelievably fascinating and adorable oh, no. to me. Oh, no. No, but it's because they were no danger to me anymore. <laughs> oh, that's you know, it was like I could allow myself to appreciate how incredible they were. And now I love babies. Wow. Never liked babies. <laughs> babies earlier. Are, so are it's, it's almost yeah. like if you thought they were cute when you were vulnerable to I wouldn't let myself ones. see yeah. how cute they were. Because I really didn't I really didn't want one. I actually think babies are cute. I, I like like a good six month old, like six to nine months. Mm-hmm. I like that. And any younger and any older, no. <laughs> yeah, because they're kind of like a puppy at that time. Uh, but not, they're not too small that they're like scary. Right. Well, yeah. Lori always used to say that she would have a kid if, um, you know, she wanted the kid to start at 13. Basically. Really? Yeah. So when, as soon as they can, uh, well, it's when they can talk about theater, then they can. <laughs> They can come oh, sit at the table. Yeah. You yeah. want a gay, a gay man, a gay well, boy. I he did that. Up. I did in, in middle almost school. marry a gay man, but also ten-year-old girls. Yeah, Love they're ten- pretty great. Those yes. are amazing. I would yes. like one of those, and that does not but last long. It. Yeah, that does not last long. You're listening to the Larb Radio Hour. We're talking to Megan Dom, author of The Unspeakable. If we are going to talk about unspeakable, I did want to talk about that impulse to just to tell all that that many of us have always had, like you'll sit next to someone on a plane or you'll meet a new friend and you will just tell everything. When I say you, I just mean some people are like that and it's an impulse and I think it's a great impulse. I mean, I think it's secrets I think are toxic and this impulse to tell everything is a writerly impulse. But if it's not handled properly, it can come off as unbearable narcissism, need for attention, et cetera. You say right in the in the introduction that you have mixed feelings about the whole genre that you, yeah. you, you've built your life around. I don't see it as telling all. It's it's definitely telling some for me. Mm. Um, you know, I, I also say in the introduction that, you know, for everything I reveal, there are a hundred things that I chose not to reveal. But I'm also happy to hear you say that because you know, my goal as as an author is to communicate in an intimate way with the reader. So I think that, you know, my interest is in giving the reader a sense that they know everything about this narrator, but that's not necessarily the same thing as knowing everything about the author. The essays in this book, you know, obviously they're all about me, but but each one of them is about something else. And I'm just sort of using my experience as yes, a lens an idea. to talk about. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah very, very much so. So it's, you know, they're, they're very judiciously chosen, all these details, even though it might not always mm-hmm. seem like it. Talk about creating a character when the character is you. <laughs> well, you know, I, there's always an element of drama that you have to impose on that narrator, because unless, you know, you are a really unhinged, you know, rash decision maker, you're not going to really be able to use yourself 100% as as that narrator. There has to be a kind of spontaneity. There has to be a, like a heightened intensity that you put on that on that narrator. So yeah, I mean, I have, it's funny, because I over the years, I've 
you know, I do, do events or something, and, and especially with, with young people or with students, they, they say like, oh, we thought you would be really depressed. Like, we can't <laughs> believe you're smiling. And and it's funny because I don't see the, the voice as depressed at all. It's not at all. Um, so maybe to, I think, I remember I was in Wahoo, Nebraska once talking to some high school students, and they just <laughs> thought, uh, they just thought that I was like, this narrator was on the verge of suicide. This was um, my first book of essays, my misspent youth they got this idea so you know well I mean as we get older and we have less time I find that sometimes we have to cut out certain friendships and one of the main reasons why I think we have to do that is because we're not talking about anything that's meaningful and as we get older it's like that's all I want to talk about is what's meaningful I don't want to just talk for the sake of talking and I think there's a parallel to that in in your in your essays you're you're going to talk about what's meaningful in order to do that you're going to have to reveal a great deal, maybe not everything. It's a requirement for being a meaningful writer. Yeah, I think what readers really appreciate is when the the author is vulnerable. I mean, it is it's very that's a perfect analogy because it is like sitting down and having a conversation with your friend and and there's nothing worse than when you've, you know, you've made time in your schedule, you go, you meet your friend, you sit down, you order a drink and then your friend is like just telling you how great her life is and you're basically getting the in-person version of their Facebook curated exactly. posts mm-hmm. and and that is just really maddening it's depressing yeah and it's irritating I mean it sort of makes it, it would make me angry you know and and the last thing you want to do is you know ask someone to pay $25 to read a, the book version of that experience <laughs> so yeah I, I really do want to speak honestly but but I think of it more um in terms of authenticity than I, I hate the word confessional and I, I hate when people say oh you're so brave you know it's because brave to me that just sounds like you just threw it all out there and you're just you know being you know gratuitous and 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 it's really not that, that at all I just want to I interviewed Lena Dunham for LA Review Books mm. and she said something interesting about that she was very annoyed when people would say that oh you're so brave because she said it doesn't take any courage for her to do these things that they're calling her brave for for instance taking off her clothes right she has no problem with it so to be complimented for being brave about something that didn't take any courage is a kind of a weird disconnect it's not exactly yeah what you're no saying, I've but- noticed this has come up lately I mean I notice it even in the column like I you know my column in the Los Angeles Times and and if I take on a subject that is sort of controversial or the, the kind of thing that I would, you know, if, if I did bother to check my, you know, if I had a Google alert on myself, I would probably see, you know, people saying horrible things and a lot of blowback about, you know, this or that topic. If I take on that kind of topic, people say, well, that's so brave. But I just feel like, no, that is my job. It is actually my job to say something that some people will disagree with or even a lot of people. I don't know. Brave has somehow entered the lexicon as a, as a synonym for provocative or interesting or something. How did you build the book? How did I build the unspeakable? Yeah. Well, it started with that first essay, Matricide. Um, And that's... That was an essay that I I very seriously considered never publishing. It's a really brutal piece. At one time, I had very mixed feelings about it being out in the world. And it's the hardest piece I've ever written. And just constructing it was really complicated and took a really long time. Um, and then once I had that, I thought, well, if I am going to put this out in the world, I want to put some other pieces with it. And, and I wanted to do, I really, I'm an essayist. I mean, that's my sort of primary genre. And I wanted to do a book of essays that had not appeared elsewhere. Elsewhere. I really wanted them to be written for this book and in the company of each other. And I didn't want to write with certain restrictions. I mean, you know, my first book, My Misspent Youth, a lot of people like that book. But, you know, the fact is, 
the essays, they bear the markings of the publications, you know, in which they first appeared. There's like a piece from GQ, there's a piece from The New Yorker, there's a piece from Harper's. And in this case, none of them were published before. And they just, I, I wanted them to be organic. So what's been the range of reactions to the essay matricide? Amazingly positive. I was shocked. Right around publication day, back in November, The Guardian approached me and they had wanted they wanted to excerpt something. And I said, OK, well, here's the book. And of course, they wanted to excerpt Matricide. And I said, is there anything else, please? Like, And, I, and we should also just let me interject mm-hmm. briefly. The, the, the essay is about your mother's life and her transition post-marriage into another kind of life and her death. Yeah, I should I should be clear. So yeah, it's about this, you know, multiple generations of women who really never liked each other. My mother really did not like her mother. I had a very difficult relationship with my mother. So my grandmother, my mother's mother, ended up dying the same week that my mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so it was just this terrible thing. I mean, there were a lot of terrible things going on, but sort of the most terrible thing was was this notion that my mother would not be able to live one day as a healthy person without her mother in the world. She'd been waiting all her life for her mother to go away. And the minute she did, my mother was about to go away. It sounds almost like an authorial decision. It's hard It's hard it to does. believe that it actually happened in real life. Well, like and that. then I ended up, I mean, and then the coda of the piece is less than a year after my mother died, I ended up getting very sick and with a freak illness and almost dying myself. And that idea had actually crossed my mind, you know, when my mother was sick. And I thought, well, gosh, like my grandmother dies and my mother's gonna die. Like, what if I died? Like, that's like the fact that I just thought of that makes means it will never happen. You know, it's like the world according to Garp, you know, <laughs> right. the, the fact that a plane has just hit this house, it'll never happen again. I'll buy the house. So, and then there was even a fourth generation involved in that right. story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it, it's a long piece. It goes on and on. It's, it's hard to describe the whole thing. But so anyway, when we're talking about, you know, the sort of brutality and the difficulty of this essay, this is this is what we're talking about. But people's reaction, you say, have been incredibly positive toward that essay. I was really surprised. Yeah, The Guardian ran a long excerpt, not the whole thing. And I was just prepared. You know, they have comments. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. And um, they were amazingly positive. People saying thank you for saying this. And um, I, That doesn't surprise me at all. I think that, you know, we're all trying to figure out our own lives. And we're desperately curious about how other people are figuring out their lives. But as, as Seth said, there was something about your essay that was very novelistic. It was a, a series of events that almost demanded a novel. Mm. But some people need to write nonfiction with the same impulses as a novelist. And it's, I'm sorry, I think it is brave, (laughs) you know, because uh, there's no cover whatsoever. You're listening to the Los Angeles Review of Books Radio Hour. We're talking to Megan Dawn. One, one little aspect of that is at the beginning of the, the second essay in the book, The Best Possible Experience, you write this. I once dated a man who read astrology books, believed in chakras, and worked regularly with a spirit guide, a communion that involved visiting a spirit guide counselor at her modest townhouse near San Diego and paying her to chant and beat drums while he lay on a massage table wearing flashing LED sunglasses. Now, um, this, this is a... This That's is a, the most embarrassing passage in the entire book, as far as I'm concerned. How so? Oh, that I would get in that situation. I mean, oh, I don't oh, care. oh, like that. I that yeah. I would. Yeah. I'm embarrassed for it. I, I know. No, uh, I'm mortified no, just uh, hearing that. You could have killed your mother, and that would have been the most <laughs> yes. embarrassing yes. passage in the book. Yes. <laughs> no, I mean it's of course. 
uh, we all we all have people like this in our past. Um, I, I don't find that embarrassing. I'm just wondering, did you worry about that guy reading it? I uh, yeah. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> he may what, have. Right. I, mean, I don't know. He one of the have. things when we talk about the bravery of, of exposing your life in nonfiction, and I deal with this with students all the time. You know, who want, wonder how they're gonna, you know, whether they should say what they're saying. You're you're making a decision to kind of out people all the time. Um, in various ways. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I if somebody says to me, you know, and if an adult says to me in the context of a relationship, well, I don't want you to write about me, I'm never going to say I'm not going to write about you. What I will say is I will protect your identity. I am not going to say anything uh-huh. that is that is your story, for one thing. I would never steal someone's story. I think the worst thing you can do is, like, if someone has their own story to tell, for you to kind of pilfer it. In this case with this guy, he is unidentifiable there, there was a lot more going on with him that I would not presume to write about uh, because they that would have identified him or the, the yeah, things or that just, you have here like that he go, goes to Burning Man festival every year in a giant RV well that does not that narrow does, it that down narrow it down very much right this was in Los Angeles yeah. and that he had a home yoga practice that chiefly involved lying on the floor of his bedroom and centering his energy that doesn't narrow it no, down no I mean so are we as, are, are, right. we should have callers call in and, get, and guess who it is <laughs> That would be fun. Yeah. That would be That would go on for a very long long time. time. (laughs) Let's give the number. It's 1-800-555-2222. Megan's mortified. Yes. And we all know these stories of people who write about somebody, like their own father, and then have their father say, "I, I know guys just like that. Yes. How, how terrible, right? Yes. Yes. All right. They do not recognize themselves, even when there's not much of an attempt to disguise them. The novelist John Retchie told us advice that we use, which is you can say anything you want about someone. You can characterize them in the novel any way you want to, as long as you say they're pretty. They will not mind. Or thin. Thin. <laughs> or if it's a woman. Yeah. Yeah. But he does have a habit of using, like, if you give him a bad review, your name will show up in his next novel as a child molester. He will do that. He likes to do that. Okay. Well, okay. I'm not saying it's mature. I mean, I just, the thing is, a rule of thumb, and I mean, this comes up in, with students all the time. I mean, yeah. you have to be harder on yourself. I mean, that those are funny passages that you just read, but ultimately that is an essay about my own approach to relationships and the way I sort of, you know, take a field work kind of approach and and the pieces about me and my folly yes, and not right. and not this ultimately not this guy at all right. you know, he is who he is we are who we are and mm-hmm. it's not you know ultimately i'm i'm the fool always there's a terrific piece in the book uh and the essay about joni mitchell connect her to the themes of the book that we've been talking about. Oh, the, the the essay is called The Joni Mitchell Problem. To me, that essay is a primer on how to read the whole book. It's the most important essay in the book. Because? Well, because it's about this very thing that we're talking about, writing mm-hmm. about yourself, um, what is confession, quote unquote. And, you know, to me, she always is somebody who appears to be confessional if you're not really paying attention or if you're going to take a kind of reductive uh, view of it. Um, but she's really talking about much bigger things and, and she's being really ambitious in her subject matter. And, you know, her work was just so influential to me growing up and, and especially the work that she's less appreciated for. I mean, you know, this idea of, of being known for the wrong things and being famous mm. for the wrong things. I mean, that 
that's kind of a, like a big concept for me in terms of, I mean, it goes beyond like, I only liked this band, you know, until they became popular. <laughs> you know, there's a little bit of that going on, but but I think it's a much bigger thing. And yeah, I it's it's inter- been interesting because some people don't connect that at all and just see that that essay is kind of thrown in. And, and mm. especially if they're not interested in Joni Mitchell, they'll tell me they skipped it. And mm. um, no, but to me, it's like actually like the, the heart of the book in a lot of ways. Good job, Seth. Your, yes, so, so jo- A plus. So Joni Mitchell is your real mother, in other words. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, Joni Mitchell uh, is the mother of all of us, and yet, <laughs> and yet, is the ultimate child-free person. I just use that word oh, with right. quotes around it. Yeah, yeah, because she had a baby, and she gave her up for adoption when she, the child was like two years old, so she could pursue her art and her career. And so that's, you know, Pretty enormous. Nice. Yeah. The book is The Unspeakable. It's a collection of essays by Megan Dom. They're funny. They're lacerating. Megan, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. It was my immense pleasure. Thanks to Megan Dom, our producer, Jerry Gorin. We're grateful for the generosity of the Goldhirsch Foundation. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, I'm Seth Greenland, and you've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books. Find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org where all your questions will be answered. Mm-hmm.